Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I want to go ahead and invite our children to Children's Church. Meet your teacher in the back there. Um, I don't know if you noticed it's St. Patrick's Day, and honestly, I'm conflicted. Uh, um, as a as a hardcore, dedicated Protestant, I really want to wear orange. It just is what I, it's it, it's in my bones. I really want to do that, but. Patrick is not such an easy person to nail down. First of all, he was never canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. So we refer to him as St. Patrick, but he was never officially sainted. So in one way, he's one of those people kind of like Augustine that the Protestants can claim. He's one of us. Um, And just as an aside, we call it St. Patrick's Day, though Patrick was never sainted. But it's turned into Valentine's Day, although Valentine was sainted, and we don't call him St. Valentine's anymore. So our culture is just so confused on this stuff. But Patrick is just a a really fascinating person. As a young man, he was kidnapped and taken to Ireland and sold as a slave. So he grew up on Ireland for a number of years as a slave, and he escaped miraculously. He had a dream in the night that said, go, and he got up and he left. And he was recovered. He came back to England. He studied. And then this is what's so remarkable about this guy. He was a slave in Ireland, and after he studied, he determined, I have to go back to Ireland. And so he, went, he returned to Ireland as a missionary after being a slave there because he understood the language, he understood the culture. And so you know that old story about St. Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland? Never happened. But what I think happened was, that's maybe a metaphor for the idea that he chased paganism out of Ireland. Because what Patrick did is he showed up and he built a little monastery kind of thing. And they, they traded and they had sheep and they raised food. And they didn't just have this isolated group. They affected the, the area around them. And so people, through the care and the love of Patrick's monks, would be interested in Christianity, even though they had resisted for years and years. Ireland was considered the end of the world. The, the bad people had been driven to the end of the world. And it was like, that was it. So Patrick goes around Ireland planting these little missional communities, and people are drawn to the gospel. They're drawn to Jesus Christ. And after Patrick's death, you think, well, that was great. That, you know, he converted the whole nation. It, it gets better. What had happened on the continent, meanwhile, was paganism began to spread and began to take over the European continent once more. And so what happened was his churches, his, his missional groups that he established on Ireland, then traveled to Scotland, and then over to the continent and repeated what Patrick had started in Ireland. And so there's a book that says how the Irish saved civilization. They came back in and re-Christianized parts of Europe. So do you see why I'm conflicted about Patrick? It's like he's a great guy. He's got this great missional strategy. And yet, you know, he's, this, he's the patron saint of Ireland, and the Roman Catholics want him, and I want him, so I wore green pants. All that to say. Um, uh, to thank Patrick for being such a great example. So having now just totally derailed that, let's pray and see if we can get back on track. Lord, this morning we sang, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And Lord, how insidious is that inclination? How common is that to us to feel our hearts wander and, and head off in another direction? And then, Lord, to sing the next verse, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Not my brain, not my hands, but, Lord, my heart. Would you grab our hearts this morning? 
arrest our hearts, seal them to you, so that when we do feel prone to wander, when we are tempted to leave the God we love, Lord, our hearts are rooted in you. There can be nothing better than, than to love and to know you. And Lord, um, this sin-stained world wants to draw us away. And Lord, this week we were reminded of the evil that is so prevalent here. Two mosques in, in New Zealand were attacked. 49 people have been killed. And Lord, this, this is horrendous. A white supremacist with racist intentions. Lord, would you heal us from this ridiculous divide? Help us to see all of humanity as image bearers of God, whether they trust in Jesus or not. They are image bearers. And Lord, help us to love well. So Lord, would you heal that community? I pray that the church in New Zealand would be a soothing balm to those people as they're mourning the loss of, um, of their families, their friends. And Lord, I pray that somehow through the midst of that, you would present the gospel in a way that would make sense out of this horrible situation. And then Father in San Paulo, um, Sao Paulo in uh, Brazil, another school shooting. Uh, Father, why are we killing our children? What, what on earth is leading us to do these things? Would you have mercy on us and lead us out of those things? Father, I pray that the message of the gospel um, might permeate our culture again, um, Western culture uh, around the world. And Lord, may we recover the gospel for not just our churches, but for our culture in general. And so, Lord, to that end, would you show us what it is you have from your word for us? Lord, would you use your word to convict us of the truth that we might then share it freely and, and broadly with everyone we know? And Lord, through that, may you redeem the entire world to yourself. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, chapter 20, uh, I number of the commentaries said chapter 20 really is the, end, the beginning of the end of the book of Acts. Uh, chapter 20 through 28 is the end. And, and I think when we go through this this morning, you'll see there's this marked tone that changes in Luke's writing. It feels like he's drawn into the home stretch. Um, what you heard this morning is, is Paul is heading towards Jerusalem. This is the last time to go to Jerusalem. This is his last free moment. Uh, once he gets to Jerusalem, he'll be arrested, and then he's off to Rome. And so you get this kind of narrowing, tunneling effect of, of what's going on. And if I'm reading that right, if I understand Luke correctly at this point, this kind of turning point in the book, then um, what he's doing now is he's kind of summing up for us and heading toward that last journey. And so today what we're going to see is we're going to just kind of have a chance to remember Paul's ministry. In, in ways that you don't expect, it was kind of surprised me too, but we're remembering Paul's ministry. We're going to remember where he'd been, we're going to remember what's important to him, and then we're going to see where he's going. And so this is our, our chance to recall, uh, uh, recall Paul's work, who he is and what he's done. This is our third act in the story of the book of Acts. I had to use act twice. I couldn't figure out a better way to say that. The third movement, um, if you're more musicianal. Musicianal? Congratulations, I just made up a word. <laughs> uh, so this first section is, um, is the first uh, six verses, and it's talking about, uh, it starts off with, the, when the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. What uproar? Well, remember where he was. He was in uh, Ephesus, and a, uh, a big riot started in the, in the, um, the theater, and so it starts off after the uproar ceased. Now notice, Paul didn't get chased out by that uproar. They didn't throw Paul out of the city. They didn't drag him out and stone him. The uproar ceased. It's all over. And then when Paul was ready, he left. 
So that's, that's kind of an indication of what uh, the, gold, the silversmith had in mind and what actually came about, which was very different. Uh, but you also get this, this idea that maybe Paul was kind of laying low at this point because what it says is he called the, the uh, disciples to himself. He sent for the disciples. So maybe he's not quite as public as still teaching in the Hall of Tyrannus. Maybe he's being a little bit more low-key because there's still some rumblings. So he's being careful and he's being wise, but he calls the disciples, and then this word was repeated twice in our verse, or in our section, encouraging. He called them together and he encouraged them. The New American Standard, I think, uses exhort. And, and that could be, you know, the, there's what's the big difference between encourage and exhort? You know, just a slight lean of, of what's going on in it. Uh, so that's why the word could be used for both. But he's encouraging them. He, he's about to depart. And if, if I'm reading Luke correctly, if this is kind of the end of his missionary journey, he's heading home and then off to Rome, then what he wants to do is he wants to leave them in a good place. So he encourages them. And he sells, says farewell and he heads off for Macedonia. So can you throw the map up real quick? So you remember, I forgot my laser pointer. So imagine there's a green dot up there where I'm pointing. So you remember where Ephesus is, right? Over in Turkey? He's heading towards Macedonia, which is that northern part of Greece. That's where he's planning on going. He, is he heading toward Jerusalem? No, he's heading the other way. What is Paul up to? What Paul is doing is what Paul has always been doing. He is going to check on his churches. He's going back to follow up with those saints and make sure they're secure, make sure everything is set okay. So he's going from Ephesus and he's heading to Macedonia. This map is a little busy, and I got to warn you, as we progress through the rest of the book of Acts, the maps are going to be a little busy because after this point, Luke is with him again, and he starts his journals. He starts telling us all these places that they just sail past. So I want to point him out, but we don't need to dwell on it too much. But that's where we're at, Ephesus. That's where we're heading, Macedonia. And so once he gets there, it says in verse 2 that he came to Greece. Do you see Greece on that map anywhere? You don't see that word. Um, because Greece is more of a generic term for this, the nation state. So it's interesting how Luke goes from, he's very specific previously, Macedonia, Achaia, um, you know, these different regions. Now all of a sudden he goes, well, he goes to Greece. Um, what he probably went when he says he goes to Greece is he probably went to Achaia, which is down in that southern part. Remember where Athens was and Corinth and all of those? That's probably where he went. And we know that because in the book of uh, Corinthians, it talks about him coming in and uh, returning and visiting him again. So that's probably what was going on as he was in Corinth um, visiting at that point. But Luke just kind of sums it up. There's a, by the way, there's a lot of things Paul doesn't or Luke doesn't say in this, and it's really frustrating, and I'll explain why in a little bit. You know, why, probably why he doesn't say it. Um, so he spends three months there, and then he hears that there was a plot against him uh, by the Jews. And so what he was about to do is, he was, it says he was about to set sail for Syria. So that's way down, oh, I forgot to put Syria on the map. Um, that's over north of Jerusalem in that area. He was going to set sail for there, but he hears about a plot. Now, that is all we hear is there was a plot. What kind of plot? You know, what was the deal? The, the fact that instead of sailing, he then goes by land up to Macedonia probably means that he had heard that they were going to kill him on the boat. And that makes a lot of sense because there's no legal jurisdiction on the boat. There's no, um, uh, you know, police going to arrest these folks. They just pitch him over the rail. Gee, we don't know what happened to him. Pity he drowned. <laughs> but they were, they were going to get rid of him. There's a plot. So instead of sailing, he decides to go north. And so that's where he heads. Heads north up into Macedonia. Now, what comes next in this section is a list of names. 
And Fernando, I'm very impressed you nailed them, man. <laughs> if it was me reading, I probably would have mangled them all. But there's this list of names who are going to go with him. So they, they accompany him, but they head off to Troas. You see where Troas is up there in the northern little tip of Turkey. That's where they head, and they're going to wait and meet him there. So they probably sailed to Troas, and he's heading over land. Paul, I get the impression from this section and some other ones, I don't think he liked to sail. Because he, he heads overland here. When he leaves, he's going to say, well, you guys sail down there and I'll meet you. And he heads overland. When he returns from uh, his second voyage home, remember he sailed in, he went down to Jerusalem and went up to uh, Antioch and then Galatia. He takes the land route. He doesn't sail back over to Greece. So I get the impression the man did not like to sail, but you didn't have any choices back then. Uh, the rail service back then was terrible. So there's a list of people and they sail and they meet him at Troas. Um, and it says, but we sailed from Philippi. So you see where Philippi is. So he goes up into Macedonia. He's at Philippi, and then he sails to Troas. He didn't have a choice because he can't see it on the map real well, but there's a little gap right there above Troas. So you're going to sail at some point. So Philippi has probably got enough ships and enough commerce so that he can hop on a, on a boat and go. And then it says that he, um, they sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and they were uh, and in five days they came to them at Troas, where they stayed for seven days. So Philippi to Troas doesn't look like five days. As a matter of fact, previously he'd done it in three. So what's going on? Well, winds, weather, that affected how you sailed quite a bit. Also, um, what the sailors were doing. Maybe they had stops along the way. So it's taken him five days to get there. Now, what's up with the five days and the unleavened bread and all of that? Well, we know from the end, it's Paul's purpose to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Pentecost at that time was celebrated 40 days after Passover. So when he talks about after the days of unleavened bread, he's heading to Jerusalem and it almost feels like Luke just clicked the, the stopwatch. The time is counting. You've got 40 days for him to make it there by that time. So according to Exodus 12, um, they would do the Passover meal on the 14th day of the first month, which was not January, but in, in uh, March or April. Um, so they would do the Passover, and then for uh, seven days, they would have days of unleavened bread. So they would do Passover, they would get all the leaven out of the house, they would do seven days of eating unleavened bread. That was the days of unleavened bread. So click, 40, now we minus seven. Seven days. Now we subtract another five because it takes five days to sail there. And then they stayed for another seven days. So you see the, the clock ticking down. He's down to about 29 days now to get there. Uh, so from 40 to 29, and he's, he's got a ways to go. There's still about 610 miles, which back then was pretty bad. So that's the, uh, the, the meal, the Passover. So uh, let me mention real quick a couple of things that Luke doesn't, or that, yeah, Luke doesn't mention. Um, he doesn't mention Titus. And Titus, according to 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, had gone to Corinth. It was probable that, that he carried the, the Corinthian epistles to Corinth for, for Paul. And Luke doesn't mention him. And boy, I'll tell you, that just had some of these commentators in knots. Why doesn't he mention him? Well, a whole bunch he didn't mention, so what's the big deal? Um, do you remember from other places that he took a collection. So for example, 2 Corinthians 8, he talks about taking a collection from the Corinthians to Jerusalem. 
It's also mentioned probably in Romans 15, verse 25, that he's taken up this, this offering to take to the saints in Jerusalem. That's not mentioned. Again, commentators get all frantic about this. Why doesn't he mention it? Um, and then there was an apparent ministry in uh, Illyr Illyricum. Fernando, would you pronounce that for me? Illyricum, which doesn't get mentioned. Illyricum, by the way, is north of Macedonia. It's still part of Greece, but it's north of Macedonia. So when Paul went up into Macedonia, he probably went a little further north and did some work in Illyricum, Il um, which is mentioned in Romans 15. So these things don't get mentioned, and people get frantic about it. Um, and then you get into all these weird questions about Luke's sources and where did he get this? It's, that maybe Luke had a purpose in writing what he wrote, and that didn't fit with the purpose. Maybe that was a distraction. And that's my impression is as we're in, into this section where we're kind of heading toward Jerusalem, heading to the end of Paul's ministry, we don't have time to introduce Titus and, and deal with this money. The money will come up, by the way, in chapter 24. The offering will be mentioned. So it's not out of the scope. It's just not that's part of the focus here. So... Yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't it make sense that Titus get mentioned? Well, here's why I think Titus didn't get mentioned. Look at the people who did get mentioned. Silpater, the Berean, of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, Gaius of Derby, Timothy, who we know is from Lystra, and the Asians. What he's just done, what Luke has just done by mentioning these people and where they're from, he doesn't always mention where they're from, is look at the map. He recalls Paul's journeys. He's reminding us at this point, look at where Paul's been. Look what he's done. Derby is over in Galatia. Thessalonica and Berea are over there in Greece. He's mentioning all these places that, that Paul has been. He's recalling for us. He's making us think again about that whole missionary journey up to this point. It's a refreshing. It's saying, look what Paul has done. Look where he's been. He's left churches in all of these places. And that idea that he's encouraging them at the, at the beginning, he's reminding us Paul doesn't just make converts and walk away. He makes disciples. He establishes churches, and then he goes back and he follows up with them, and he carries on, and he makes sure they're doing all right. And then if we read the story of Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila correctly, it's not like Paul's gone and these churches just fall apart. There are people who are going to come in and strengthen them. Paulus, Apollos went in and he encouraged the church. He taught the church. He was a strong speaker. And so the idea that I think Luke is trying to leave us with here is this picture of Paul has established these churches and these churches are going to be okay. They will continue. God is going to make sure that they go on. And that's why he does that is he shows us that, that map in our heads, right? He didn't have a map written in his scroll, but he can do it in our heads by making us remember these places. Derby, remember the story of Derby? Oh, yeah. And Timothy, oh, yeah. Remember the story about Timothy? And Thessalonica, wow, that was something. So that's, that's the way he's communicating to us. He, he kind of pulls it out of us. So in a, in a way, that simple story, that just recounting there, is, is a travel journal. Now, you're thinking the end is the travel journal because it mentions all the places, but really it's, it's this that I think Luke is focusing on to remind us that this has been Paul's ministry. And Paul will later in, in, in some of the New Testament will say, hey, remember my way of life. Imitate me. As I follow Christ, follow me. Let me show you the direction. Let me show you the way. So if the book of Acts is disciples making disciples, we've just been reminded of the, the global. At that time, that was pretty much the globe, the global ministry of Paul, the wide expanse of his involvement and what he leaves behind.
So the next section, this is the big one. This is, this is really the, you know, the story part. Uh, on the first day of the week when they were gathered together, where, where are we? We're at Troas, remember? They stopped in Troas. So as he arrives there, it's the first day of the week. They gather together to break bread, and Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day. And he prolonged his speech till midnight. So first of all, it's the first day of the week. Um, why mention the day of the week? Well, I think it's important. I think this is, is establishing something for us that the church gathered on the first day of the week from the beginning, from long ago. This was probably happening in, in the early 50s, and uh, 1950s. <laughs> Don't think leather jackets and slick back hair. In the early 50s, this was happening, and the church is gathering on the first day of the week. Now, just to drop another little coin in that pond, don't forget the First Corinthians was probably written around this time, maybe a little bit before. And in First Corinthians chapter 16, it says, On the first day of the week, uh, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he prospers. So does Paul mean, you know, when you're at home and it's the first day of the week, then set a little money aside? No, he seems to be talking to the church as they gather. So even in Corinth, it looks like they're gathering on the first day of the week. So what do we mean by the first day of the week? Is it special? Is there something, you know, wonderful about this? Well, first of all, don't forget, we don't grab the old covenant laws about Sabbath and magically move them to Sunday and say, now you can't make anything, you can't start a fire, you can't walk too far, you, you know, all those. Oh, by the way, the not walking too far is not in the Old Covenant. That was the Pharisees. The rules that you get on how to celebrate the Sabbath don't come to us from the Old Covenant. That Old Covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. But what does come to us is a pattern. There's a pattern of work and rest. Six days you shall work, on the seventh you shall rest. And in Christ, that's made new, and it's the first day of the week. Why the first day? Because that's the day he rose from the dead. So as we gather, Easter's coming, right? What do we celebrate on Easter? The resurrection. What do we celebrate every Sunday? The resurrection. That's why we do it on Sunday and not Saturday, is this is new in Jesus. So when it says they gathered on the first day of the week, and they broke bread, and they heard Paul talk, gosh, that sounds like church, doesn't it? It sounds like the church got to, that's, that's all that's going on. So there's no rules attached. There's no big elaborate, you know, you, you have to sit this way or, you know, be, be on time or whatever it is. It is, here's, here's what the church has been doing. These are the churches Paul has established. This is their pattern. So on the first day of the week, they gather together. And then what Paul does, and, and if, again, if I'm right, if this is kind of that time is ticking down and we got the, you know, the calendar, like the old, calendar pages flying off, you know, as the days are going past. Paul feels this pressure. He wants to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. His, he knows his time at Troas is short, so what does he do? What's the most important thing for him to do? Um, he breaks bread. Now, is that the Lord's Supper? I don't have a clue. I don't know. When they celebrated the Lord's Supper back then, it wasn't with a cracker and a tiny cup. They would have a real, actual, full-blown meal together. And during the meal, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. They would say, this is his, this is his body and this is his blood. Um, do this in remembrance of me. That's what they did then. So when it says that they broke bread, they probably got together and ate. Can you imagine if every communion Sunday, um, at that point in the service, we stop, we bring out breakfast, and we all just eat together. That would be what was happening in the first century. Now, we've ceremonialized it and turned it into a little cracker and a, and a cup, and there's nothing wrong with that. 
I'm not criticizing that. But back then, they, they had full-blown meals. Read 1 Corinthians 11, and you get the idea, hey, people, are getting, people get drunk at the Lord's Supper. They're not getting drunk off a thimbleful of wine. People would come hungry, and others would go away full. They didn't get full off of one little cracker. Matter of fact, that usually whets my appetite. Doesn't doesn't put it away. So they had this full-blown meal, and it wasn't quite as clear and ceremonial for them as it was for us. So they have this meal together, and Paul talks, and he talks a long time. So last week, my sermon went long. And I appreciate that nobody complained about it, and the good news is nobody fell out a window. So it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. So they're, they're upstairs, Paul is talking, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. I haven't gone to midnight yet. It might happen. I, I doubt it. Um, and it says in verse 8, there were many lamps, lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. Well, of course there are many lamps. It's midnight. So they have a lot of lamps, maybe some torches, something to keep the upstairs lit. And then we're introduced to a young man named Eutychus. Guess what Eutychus means? This is hilarious. Lucky one. The lucky one. This is the, so lucky one, the lucky guy is sitting in the window, and he starts falling asleep. He sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Third story, we're thinking three floors. That's because we're Americans. It's the second story. Um, in, in other cultures, the third floor is actually the second one, but we call it the second story because we call the ground floor the ground floor. And yeah, so he fell out, whether it was two stories or three, do you want to fall out of it? I, I would rather not, thank you very much. So he falls out and he's dead. It says they took him up for dead. It doesn't mean they thought he was dead. And when Paul comes down and says his life is still in him, it doesn't mean Paul's going, oh, you guys don't know how to diagnose death. It really happened. He died. He fell out, and he, he died on the, when he hit the ground. Um, that would stop a service. That would end the service, I would think. And so Paul comes down and takes him into his arms, and he says, don't be alarmed. His life is still in him. The word for life is psyche. His soul is still in him. So what he's saying is he's not dead. He's been brought back to life. And the picture there is almost kind of like Elijah or Elisha, isn't it? Do you remember those stories? The, the widow's son had died and Elijah came up and resurrected him, laid on him and, and brought him back to life. It's kind of that intimate, close holding on to him and he brings him back to life. And so when the, he says there, his life is in him, then Paul had gone back up and he broke bread again. Why? Because they probably broke bread at the evening and now it's you know one or two in the morning, it's the next day. So they eat again because he's got a long journey ahead of him. He ate again, and it says he conversed with them. Now, the word changes from talked to conversed. So it might signal, and I don't, if you don't agree with me, that's fine, because I might be reading too much into it. But it sounds like the service has ended. He, he talked. He was preaching during the service. The, the word there is dialogue. But this point, now the service has ended. He eats, and now he's just sitting down, and he's just talking. So what's going on in your life? What's happening? How's business? You know, I, I hear tent making is doing well this year. You know, that kind of stuff. Now he's just conversing with them. And, and then daybreak comes and they depart. And so the story ends with this great news. They took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. If you're not a little comforted, then how much comforted are you? 
You're a lot of comforted. That's how much comforted there were. So what's going on with this? Um, Paul has come to them, and he's got a specific amount of time to spend with them. And how does he spend his time? What is the most important thing for this church to survive? As he visits the church in Troas, uh, does he uh, say, look, I've only got 24 hours. Let's do a healing ministry. Bring everybody up. We'll start doing healing. Well, there was a healing. A guy got resurrected. It don't get much healer than that. But that wasn't the focus, was it? Does he talk about church growth strategies? This is how you're going to grow this church, is, is you got to take this approach and you'll grow this church. Does he have a leadership training seminar? This is what it's going to be like in the future, and this is how you lead this congregation well. And how about outreach? Sets up a big tent out in the middle of, of uh, Troas and does a major outreach event trying to get more people in. Does he celebrate the sacraments? They just stand around and, and break bread and baptize. And what's the most important thing for him at this point? Teaching. He spends all night teaching. That's what he does. That was the most important thing. If he went through the, the uh, churches in Macedonia and encouraged them, he was telling them something. And now he comes here, and what he does is, I'm, I'm heading to Jerusalem, and he already is beginning to get a hint that Jerusalem is the end of the road. And so he encouraged, he taught. That's why I said, I'm a Protestant through and through. The Protestant Reformation, if it did nothing else, it recovered the, and elevated the preaching and the teaching of the word to the central point. Before that, the sacrament was the central point of the service. Breaking of bread and drinking of wine, that was the, the most important thing. The, the preaching was just a little minor part. The reading was in Latin, which nobody understood. The Protestant Reformation came along and said, no, what's most central, what's most important is the word of God. And I think that's rooted in Paul's ministry. You see that in Paul's ministry. You hear Augustine talking about the word of God. You see Calvin preaching the word of God. You see Luther centering the, the sermon as the, the major portion of the Protestant Reformation. The churches in England focused on the word. Suddenly, instead of having the, set, the table in front, they had this pulpit that was elevated so that the word of God came. We're not making this up. We're not just saying, well, we, we would prefer this over that. What's central to Paul is the preaching and teaching of the word. Now, I, kinda, I didn't mean to throw those other things under the bus. Healing ministry, if there's a healing ministry, that can be a good thing. Um, uh, church growth, if a church isn't growing, maybe there's something that needs to be done. A church growth seminar might be helpful. Um, uh, leadership training, boy, if you're not training leaders, what do you get? Untrained leaders. And, and what do they do? They go in weird directions. Outreach. We should be doing outreach. We've got to do outreach. The sacraments. I use this. I'm a Protestant. Did I mention that? I'm a Protestant. So when I use the word sacrament, I use it in a Protestant way. Not that these things do something magic, but that these are things that Jesus has given us to do. We practice the sacraments. Every, uh, every month we do the Lord's Supper. We do baptisms on a regular basis. We practice those things. Those are not dispensable things. Those aren't things you, you don't do. But if we're looking to Paul, if Luke is doing what I think he's doing, which is calling our attention to Paul and saying, remember Paul, what he's doing is he's shoving first and foremost preaching and teaching. And why is that? Because as wonderful as those other things are, they will not transform you into the image of Christ. They will only get you so far. Prove it, Tim. Show me that from Scripture. 
I, I want to know that from the Word. 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power, whose? God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Where do we get all things that pertain to life and godliness? He's granted them to us. Where, where are they? Through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which we are granted His precious and very great promises. Do you want to have everything you need for life and godliness? Know Him. How do you know Him? He's given us His Word. So when, when the Protestant Reformation says we need to focus on the Word of God, it is not because it just is a neat thing to do. It's not just because it makes us go, hmm. It's because in the Word of God and knowing Jesus, knowing God through Jesus, through the Word of God, we have everything we need for life and godliness. So when Paul comes and he spends till midnight and past preaching, what do you think he's talking about? What, is he, what have we seen him do throughout the book of Acts? He's talked about one thing. Jesus is the Messiah, and the resurrection proves it. Jesus is the Messiah, and the resurrection proves it. Jesus is the Messiah, and the resurrection proves it. You, you Gentiles, you're worshiping things you don't even understand. Let me tell you about a God who actually created everything you're worshiping. And by the way, he sent one man, Jesus, and he was risen from the dead. That's his, his message. You bump into him, that's what you get. You don't get, oh, excuse me, so Jesus is the Messiah, and, and, and the resurrection proves it. Oh, sorry, that's, that's what he did. So what do you think he's preaching at Troas? Same message. We're going to hear it next week, because next week he's going to stop, and he's going to talk to the, the leaders from Ephesus, and he's going to give him, them his farewell message. And guess who's central in his farewell message? Jesus Christ. So in this church, if I'm doing this right, you're going to hear about Jesus. In, in this church, if, if Dan is doing it right on, on Sunday school mornings, on, on what else do you do, Thursdays and um, Sunday afternoon, I, the man does too much. We don't pay him enough. Should we, let's vote for a 50% pay raise for him right now. All in favor. That passed. If he's doing it right, what you're going to hear about is Jesus. In the women's groups on Tuesday and, or on Wednesday, Tuesday and Wednesday, yeah, it's split now. Um, if it, they're doing it right, you're going to hear about Jesus. In men's group, you're going to hear about Jesus. On beta on Friday, you're going to hear about Jesus. Why? Because that's how you grow. That's, that's the message. That's the hope that Paul had for these folks is to know more about who Jesus was. So you have to know Jesus better. It's the lifeblood of the church. So what about Eutychus's resurrection? Why is that there? Why, why tell this story, Right? If my theory is right, if I'm saying, you know, it's all about Jesus, what does Eutychus have to do with it? Well, first of all, it's a fun story. Um, anybody ever fallen asleep during church? I will confess right up front, I have. When I was in seminary, I used to fall asleep leaning on Lisa, and she'd elbow me because, you know, I'd, I'd be up all night. So I've fallen asleep during church. You're not alone. And the good news is, if you die... <laughs> It's not the end. The reason that Eutychus is, is told in this story, I think, is not just because it's an interesting story, but also because if Paul is preaching this message, Jesus is raised, Jesus is raised, Jesus is raised, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, he is who he said he is, then God comes along and attests to that message with miracles. And so Eutychus falling asleep and dropping out of the window was not some happenstance. God blinked at that moment and missed it. 
Do you remember in John, why was this man born blind? Was it for his sin or the sin of his parents? And what did Jesus say? It was neither one. What are you talking about? He was born blind so that God may be glorified. Why did Eutychus fall out of a window? Was it because he was lazy? Was it because the upstairs room was filled with torches, so there was too, car too much carbon uh, monoxide building up, and, it, and it, well, he was in a window. If anybody got the best air in the place, it was him. He was sitting in a window. Why did he fall out of a window and die? For the glory of God, so that God could attest to what Paul is saying is true. And you can tell, not only because Jesus is raised from the dead, you can tell Paul's right because I'm coming through with miracles. I'm attesting to his story. I'm attesting to his teaching with this huge miracle. And so they take the boy up, and they are not much, or not a little bit uh, relieved. They are glad to have him back because they love Eutychus, but also what a miraculous thing that's happened in our midst. Isn't this wonderful? So that's Eutychus's resurrection. The last part, I got to tell you folks, the, this is the part that tripped me up all week until about this morning when I got in the shower. Um, I just couldn't figure out why is this here? This is the part that sounds like Luke's travel journal, doesn't it? So here's what's going on is they went ahead to the ship to set sail for Asos, which is right next to Troas. You see how close they were. They, go to, they, they, um, they set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul on board. Um, for He had arranged for them to go by land. So he's going to walk from uh, Troas to Asos. They'll pick him up there, and then they'll sail. Uh, and oh, by the way, I forgot to mention this. When they left Philippi, did you notice that it was the we passages again? Luke's back. And Luke will probably be with him for most of the rest of this journey. It's, it's back to the we passages. So this is, remember where we met Luke last time? Philippi. So it's possible that Luke was a Philipp Philippian. I almost said Felician. <laughs> almost a, he's a, he might be a Philippian. Um, and he's rejoined Paul, and now they're sailing. And so then he gives us, it sounds like he's just been writing in his journal. And so when he picks up to write Acts, he pulls his journal out and says, yeah, this is where we went. Uh, we took him on board at uh, Mytilene, and then we, um, the following day we went by Chios, but we didn't land there. We, we touched at Samos just briefly, and then, uh, so Mytilene, by the way, that's not the island of Mytilene. Mytilene is a, is a city on that island, that little island it's next to. That's the island of Lesbos, and so Mytilene is a, is a, a city there. That's where they stopped. They sail past Chios, that's the name of that island, and Samos is the name of that island. So that's where they're going. You see they're heading around the, the front of, uh, of Turkey and heading towards Jerusalem. Um, and then Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might have, not have to spend time in Asia, back to Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So he knows, if I stop by Ephesus, I'm not leaving. He's had such a wonderful ministry. We heard about his ministry last week. He's like, they're going to suck me in and I won't get past. So I'm going to sail past it. Very interesting, fascinating little story. Why is this here? Why do we get all these little details, Samos and, and um, all of that stuff? Why didn't he just say he set sail from uh, Troas and um, tried to avoid Ephesus and landed at, um, at Miletus? This is where the, the idea that the Bible, what does the Bible mean? What does the scriptures mean? One of the interpretive approaches is to say what the Bible means is what it meant to the original hearers and nothing more. So the people who Luke wrote to, that's what that means. And so we have to get in touch with that. And that's the only meaning. So here's my problem with that approach. Uh, by the way, understanding what the original hearers meant and understood is a good idea. 
but I don't think it's only way to do it. So here's what's going on. Imagine if I told you when Lisa and I moved out here, we drove from Illinois and we kind of followed Route 66. We stopped in St. Louis, we stopped in Oklahoma City, then we diverted through Texas to visit some family, then we wound up in Albuquerque and drove out to Laughlin, and then we came here. Do you understand what I'm saying? You, you know what Route 66 is. You can picture some of these places. Some of you have been to Laughlin, right? You know what I'm saying. So when you hear that, you, you get this image of here's that journey. This is what that looks like. Now imagine to, if I was to say to you, uh, I went traveling through Saskatchewan. We stopped in Regina and Saskatoon. We went to Moose Jaw and Prince Albert. Any clue what I'm talking about? No clue. Most of you have not been to uh, um, um, Saskatchewan. I got Saskatoon stuck in my head and I couldn't get past it. Most of you haven't been to Saskatchewan, right? This is not a place you've been. So if I said, then the only way that you make sense of that is by the original hearers who, who heard it, you're disconnected from it. It's, it's places, anybody know where Samos is? Everybody been there? I mean, oh, stop it, Dan. <laughs> he was stationed in Greek, so he knows where this stuff is. But it, it's disconnected from us. So if we say we can only hear it the way the original audience heard it, we're lost. Because they're hearing it like I'm talking about Route 66. We're hearing it like when I'm talking about Saskatchewan. So I think when the Bible has meaning, it does have meaning. But remember, it's, we heard it in Sunday school. It's living and active. It's not that it was living and active. It is. It applies. It, it, it means something today. So when we hear it, we don't have to transport back to the first century and go, what does that mean? What we should do is look back to the first century and say, well, how did they understand it? What's it got to do with me? How do I connect with it? So what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I think there's a couple of things we can do with it. First of all, um, it sounds foreign, doesn't it? Mytilene, Miletus, they all sound foreign. They are. And I think the way the Holy Spirit might be using that is to remind us the gospel didn't originate in North America. It didn't start in, in, in Europe, in Western Europe. It, the Bible wasn't written in English. Sorry, King James. It's foreign. It is a foreign thing. It, is, it has traveled the globe, and it's not done traveling yet. The gospel is surging in, in southern, uh, the, the southern um, America, the south, uh, what is that called? Global south. Global south, thank you. It's surging in, in uh, China, and the Chinese really hate that, by the way. It's going around the world. It is a foreign thing. It spreads. It goes. So the original hearers may have heard that, and that sounds familiar to everybody else. It sounds foreign. That's the point. The gospel is spreading. It's traveling. For these folks, when they heard these cities and these, and these islands, they could picture them. Maybe, maybe some of his audience had sailed past them or, or grew up there or something. They can picture them. They got a vision. Anybody have in their mind a vision of what Samos looks like? Not a clue. I haven't got any idea. But when we hear these things, these minute details that Luke tends to throw in, they're actual places, and we can go find them. You, you can look it up in Wikipedia, and there's pictures of these things. There's points on the map. There's excavations. Somebody has dug this up and said, yeah, there was a place on Lesbos called Mytilene. It's, it's there. We know where it is. So for the original audience, yeah, that's a travel journal. For us, it roots the gospel. It roots Paul's ministry in reality. It puts it on the dirt. This stuff actually happened. There were really places like this. It's, it's honest. It ha it, it's, a, it's a historical event. It's not something hysterical. It's historical. 
And so these places sound ancient because the gospel's historic, not mystic. It's real. Paul really walked in these places. And so I think that's the point of, of Luke's travel journals. And, and now I've got to come up with something fresh and new for the next time he does this. <laughs> I'll just yeah, I'll say this again. You guys won't remember anyway. Or you're falling asleep and falling out of a window. I don't know. But the point is, this is real history. And that's, that's maybe not Luke's reason for writing it, but I think it's the Holy Spirit's reason for writing it, is to remind people in the 21st century in America, this is, this is concrete. This isn't somebody floating above the ground and saying mystical things. This is a dude on the ground who was really human, and he actually did things. And you know what? One of the things was he raised a man from the dead. It, it just happened. Do you notice Luke doesn't present it as some, some huge foreign event? It doesn't talk about it as if it's uh, um, folklore. He just presents it as this is one more thing that happened. Oh, by the way, while he was teaching, it, it's, it, that's the idea is it's concrete and it's true today. So the gospel is ancient, but the gospel is relevant even today. The, the gospel is something that happened in actual real fact of history. And we can go back and walk those same steps. We can see this stuff. And so I think that's why Paul is, or Luke is doing this, is he's reminding us this is the nature of Paul's ministry. This is what it's like when Paul is teaching. He talked about historical event. Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, rose from the dead as history. This is an event that occurred. And so that's what he's reminding us of. That's what he's drawing us into. That's why he's telling us one more time, remember Paul. As Paul fades out, as Paul heads towards Rome, remember Paul. These are the things that were important to him. This is what he did to strengthen and encourage the church. It applied in the first century. It applies in the 21st century. It's something that we should be engaged in. It's where, it's where our heart should be. It's what our priorities should be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I am so grateful for the history of this little church. Um, we have been a church that has always focused on the Word of God. Um, since I came here um, X amount of years ago, um, Lord, it, 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 that has just been the heartbeat of this church. It was what drew me to this church is we could learn more about the Bible. And Lord, we're not learning trivia questions from the Bible or, um, or interesting tidbits of facts, but Lord, Lord we're, we're learning history. We're hearing about the history of what you're doing in the world. And most importantly, we're hearing about Jesus Christ, an actual figure who actually walked the earth, who actually was cru crucified, and who actually rose from the dead. So Lord, would you use all those things to equip us for life and godliness as you fit us with more knowledge of him? Lord, as I prayed at the beginning, our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, through the knowledge of who Jesus is, through the reality of what's going on, would you seal our hearts, all of ours? And Lord, I pray that we would be engaged in sharing that message with more so that the gospel continues to do what it's been doing, which is spread. Lord, draw many more people to yourself, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.